0: Good morning, church. It has been uh, a while. Someone told me in the back that their child asked if I still attended here. (laughs) Sorry. I do. I promise. Um, I have been away the last couple of weeks at Redwood Camp Meeting um, with my as you know, I worked at Redwood Camp Meeting, many of you know, I worked at Redwood Camp Meeting in the early teen division for 23 years. And um, about, oh, five years ago, I decided 23 was enough and I quit and um, stopped, stopped attending for a whole year. And then I started this other job for the conference office where I have to go to Redwood Camp Meeting um, every year. <laughs> so... Um, I did enjoy myself. I will tell you that, uh, this, this new role I have, I'm, I, as I act as ministerial director in the conference as well, this new role allows me to go around and, and visit all of the different, uh, venues at camp meetings. So I go to the, to the adults too, which used to be young adults till they stopped being young. And then I go to collegiate, and I, I, so I got to drop in on all the various locations where people were speaking and just hear the speakers. Um, I caught several meetings. In 23 years in the early teen division, I bet I didn't catch 15 meetings, because you're just busy from, from 7 in the morning with the first devotional till 9, nine at night. You're busy all day long. Um, well, now I get a chance to hear these various speakers, and it was great to go through the camp listening to the speakers and realize that God was at work. Because these speakers who don't talk to each other before they come kept repeating the same phrases. They kept saying the same kinds of things. Randy Maxwell was sharing and he was saying, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to refocus your life on Jesus. You need to make Christ the center of your life. You need to you need to take those thoughtful hour every day to consider the life of Jesus, particularly the last closing scenes. And he talked about recentering, refocusing, and coming back to Jesus. And I went to the to the young adults tent um, where Freddie, whose last name I forget, was preaching, and he kept saying, "Let's go back deeper with Jesus. Let's go deeper with Jesus. Let's go deeper with Jesus." Even folks who were speaking on other topics, there were folks there talking about marriage and family, and they said, "Your re- your family's only going to really succeed, only going to really." Really, Just blossom when you center your family on Jesus. And so it was great to just see how the Holy Spirit had been leading and directing as folks were preparing to come to camp meeting. And uh, in my own experience there, I just really enjoyed being reminded of that need to step into to a closer walk with Jesus from various points of view. And, and I was blessed. Um, I know uh, for many of you, you're kind of also wondering when, when I'm here, Greg's not Greg's here. I'm not. We are not the same person. Um, Greg is, is out today. He likes to preach and he doesn't get as much opportunity here as he would like. And today he is preaching at uh, the Sutter Hill Church and blessing their church family. So I'd appreciate your prayers for him. He's going to start in about an hour, I think. or Let's see. No, he should start in about a, about 40 minutes. Over there, Because they'll start at 1130. So if you can remember, as, as I'm wrapping up, Greg's going to be starting. So uh, just remember to ask God's blessing upon him and upon that congregation as he shares. Um, I was listening to his desire for the four horses of the ap- apocalypse to be led by Seabiscuit. I don't know if you were all here last week, but that was his. He was hoping that Seabiscuit could lead out and be the first of the horses of the apocalypse. Um, but as I recall, Seabiscuit was not white. And so that wasn't going to work. And even though he was from Willits, it was not the, pros- not the prospect. But he, as he wrapped up, he reminded us that in all of the things that are going on, Christ is the center of this all. Christ is the center of all the things here. And he reminded you of these, this particular idea, that the book Revelation, the, the name Revelation in the book, is a translation of the original language. It's a translation from the Greek. The Greek would call this word the Apocalypse. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, okay? And that being the word that it's, that's being described, we have taken that word and made it to mean all the scary things you read in Revelation, right? Somebody says, oh, there was an apocalyptic event. We don't mean there was a revealing event, right? We mean, oh, there was a scary event or there was a terrible event or it looked like it was the end of the world, Right? The word simply means to open or to reveal something. And so if you can remember that this is a revealing of and by Jesus in this book, it takes on a little less of the scary edge, I think. You know, when you hear the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I want you to think, oh, the four horsemen of the revealing... Okay, of the opening, of the unveiling. That's what the Word's really saying. That's what's really underpinning this idea. And so as we go through Revelation together, I just want to remind you that we're being shared something we're being given something the the word is being opened to us the attempt is for us to understand better some things that are going on we're going to jump to revelation chapter 10 today but i want to read this first revelation chapter 1 verse 1 this is a revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place so this is a revealing of things that are to come right it's it's an anticipation of things coming and jesus revealed it to his servants to the apostles, to those who were following him, his disciples, to let them know what's coming. Remind you, some, remind you about prophecy. When Jesus in John says to his disciples, I'm telling you about the things that are going to happen to me. I'm telling you about the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says this about it. I am telling you these things so that when they come to pass, your faith may stand. The point of telling you the future is not so that you will know the future. The point of telling you the future is so that you don't freak out when the future future gets here. Okay, it's it is really just an opportunity for your faith not to shake, not to wiggle, not to come under strain when the future that may be a little frightening gets here. Okay, so we're going to go into Revelation chapter 10. But as we go into chapter 10, I want to remind you where you are. We're in the middle. Actually, we're near the end of the seven trumpets. You remember in Revelation you have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven plagues. It seems to be a little bit of a theme that things roll out in sevens. And as this roll of sevens rolls out, each of them starts to build on one another. And in the seven seals, seven trumpets, you begin to get a real sort of scary picture of how things are going to get toward the end. As the the last of the trumpets roll out, things start to get a little shaky looking. You know, you start hearing about wild and, and difficult looking things. But in the midst of that, as things get really intense, moving into that sixth, so think of it as it's growing in intensity, it's growing in intensity, it's growing in intensity, and you get to the sixth, whether it's the sixth seal, or the sixth plague, or the sixth trumpet. You get to that sixth one, and it's sort of peaking in the intensity. Every time, Jesus breaks in. Every time there's a break in the action, Christ steps into it, and he begins to give you a little bit of a break. In the middle of that intensity of your life, Jesus steps in. Is that not true? Yeah. When things are going really hard, if you put your ear to the to the heavens, you'll hear the Lord step in. Over and over again I've had people tell me, I was in this moment and things were going really bad and things were really scary and, and I had this this calm or this this word was spoken to me or read this passage of scripture or heard this song on the radio over and over again. Christ steps into those difficult passages of our lives and tries to provide us with a breather. So I want you to think of chapters 10 and 11 or 10 in the beginning of 11 as a breather. Here's Jesus stepping into the trumpets. It's getting louder and more intense. And these trumpets are and they're getting really loud. And the last sixth one is just blasting. And Jesus is all right. Intermission. Go out into the lobby, talk to your friends, mill around, and we'll finish this concert in a minute. That's what this is. It's that break. Um, How many of you remember the first time you had sweet and sour sauce? I remember. Third grade, I was nine years old, Mrs. Sod's class. We were visiting Chinatown. I had never had Chinese food before. Tells you, you know, my background, we we were meat and potatoes people. Okay, Chinese food has meat and rice. We didn't do rice. Okay. So I remember going to the, this Chinese restaurant with all the other third graders in our class. There were about 35 of us. And I had my buddy because you had to have a buddy. You had to sit at the table with your buddy, ride the ele- elevators with your buddy, go to the store with your buddy, cross the street with your buddy, and you were to hold hands at all times when you were out in the public. So I could, we, we didn't have to hold hands when we sat at the table, but you had to sit together. So I was there with my buddy. Okay? And we got to order our own food, which was way cool. I was nine. They they said, You can order what you want. Now I'm pretty sure that they gave us like three items to choose from. Okay? And I ordered sweet and sour. I guess I can tell you, I ordered sweet and sour pork. It was delicious. I had never had that flavor before. I had never experienced that combination, that odd, it's sweet, but it's a little sour. It has both things going on at the same time. And there's onions and peppers and all this stuff in it. It was great. I loved it, but it was the first experience. It's weird how little things like that will stick out in your mind. I can remember the red, gold, wild dragon things on the wall and sweet and sour sauce the first time. This is the experience in chapter 10 where the Bible describes the sweet and sour, sweet and bitter moment that is going to happen to John. John's going to have that experience. As the story starts out, he says, I saw still another mighty angel. You know what I like about this, this line? Still. You know what it says? John is saying, I've seen a lot of stuff by now. I got, to, and here's another one. Here's a, here's still another mighty, mighty angel coming down from heaven. Clothed with a cloud. Now get this thing. Get some of the pieces here. He's clothed with a cloud. Hmm, Who arrives in a cloud? Jesus does. And a rainbow was on his head. Now you remember going back, Pastor Greg kind of went into that, that scene in Revelation chapter 5, 6, and 7, where you're looking into the throne room of God. Do you remember what's in the throne room of God? A green rainbow. Green rainbow. Rainbows on his head. His face was like the sun. Direct quote from chapter 1. His face was shining like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. I couldn't find this anywhere else. But that burnished bronze as it's come from the furnace is what's described as his feet in chapter one. What you're looking at here is a symbolic representation of Jesus, the person carrying the message, the person who steps in after the sixth Trumpet blows is Jesus himself. He steps in in his glorified frame. He steps in with all the representations of his glory. Remember, that coming in a cloud is to redeem the people, to take them away, to rescue them from, from the, the mess that is our earth. That rainbow over his head, that rainbow is the sign of the covenant of mercy. Remember? That rainbow is the sign of a covenant of his mercy. That brightness, that shining, that effervescence that is Jesus as he shares the light of the world and is the light of the world think of the things that are being Portrayed here. This is a glorified Jesus being sent to his people with a message He arrives the cloud symbolic of the second coming the rainbow symbolic of the covenant of mercy a face like the Sun from chapter one And feet like fire. I believe this is also from chapter one. He had a little book What is the status of the book? He has a little book and it's open He has a little book and it's open in his hand. Now, in reality, at that point, it's a scroll, okay? He has a little scroll that is open, but since in modern English you don't use a lot of scrolls, it's a book. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He's claiming the entirety of the place. He has, he claims the sea. He claims the land. They're all his. He stands on them all. His left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as a lion's roar. Have you ever heard a lion roar? It's deafening. Brenda and I were in the Chicago Zoo in the, in the cat house, and yes that is the name, when they were ready to do feeding, and the different big cats started coming out to to eat, and all of them roaring. You've got tigers in there, you uh, you had leopards in there, you had all sorts of big cats in there. But when the lions began to speak, it was deafening. It's a stone and glass enclosure, and it just... Echo echoed through there. It was like being inside of the loudest drum or loudest horn you've ever heard. And they're just going at it. They, they, they were hungry, apparently, and they just roar after roar after roar. And then when they got going together, multiple roars going on. And it was literally just, you had to cover your ears. It was such an intense sound. When he speaks, he speaks like a lion Roaring. So imagine this picture. Here's Jesus. He arrives in cloud and rainbow and fiery feet and shining like the sun. He steps on the sea. He steps on the land. And he speaks. And when he speaks, it sounds like a lion. Is he trying to get someone's attention? I think he's trying to get someone to pay attention. When he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices. So lions were, and then thunder is uttering a voice. Seven of them. Once again, that number, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. This is the one, this is one of the Few passages in Revelation that just frustrates me. Well, there are a lot of them where I don't understand that are a little frustrating, but this one, I understand what's happening and it frustrates me. Cause I'm curious, I'm a little nosy, I like to know what's happening, and now something apparently that John thought was most, was important enough to write down is spoken in a thunderous voice and I don't get to know. I was about to write it, but I heard the voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things with the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. I'll come back to why that's important and why that, why that is, why he had him do this, I believe. But I want you to notice something. The book that he has is open. When the thunders blast, they're sealed. Where have you seen books sealed before? In Daniel. It's interesting that if you go back and examine that in Daniel chapter 12, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to do it. I'm not going to do too much with it. But I want you to just note in Daniel chapter 12, beginning at about verse 4 down to about verse 9, you see the same guy. He shows up. He's now hovering above the waters. He raises his hands. He speaks with this loud voice. And he proclaims that it's time to seal up the book of Daniel. This imagery being borrowed from Daniel is trying to help us to understand what's happening in this passage. In the passage, you have this sealed up book, an open book, and the sealing of another book. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up. By the way, the word angel is the word messenger. Messenger. When John the Baptist is spoken of in the New Testament, they say, and he was a messenger sent from God, the word is, and he was an angelos sent from God. He was an angel sent from God. But instead of transliterating it straight across, they translate it as messenger. So when you read it in this passage, can I just, can I just insert the messenger whom I saw standing on the sea? Would we all be comfortable with that? Because I think this is Jesus, and I think when you use the word angel, we get the wrong image. We go, we go for the wrong picture in our head. In fact, when I went on, the, on Google and I Googled this passage and I looked for images, they were all uh, gen- genetically nondescript long-haired beings with wings. They, they were. It's hard to tell female, male. They were kind of a combination of things: long hair, wings. Now, everything, every single one of them, okay. Here, I want you to see Jesus. So if I can just say, the messenger whom I saw standing on the sea on the land raised up his hand to the heaven. So not only he's coming in a cloud, he's got a rainbow over his head, he's speaking with a voice like a lion, thunder is out, and now he raises up his hand and he begins to swear by the heavens and by the creator. He raises up his hand to the heaven. By the way, the one in Revelation 12, hands are up as well swears by Him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. He is swearing by God Himself. He raises up His hands and He makes an oath. He makes a pledge. This is a strong statement. Everything about these first couple of paragraphs is saying, what is coming is important, what is coming is important, what is coming is important. That there should be, here's the proclamation, Delay. No longer. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you have, your version may say time no longer. If you have a real modern sort of open translation, it may actually say prophetic time no longer. It's, it, I like the delay no longer because when you read time no longer, you think this is the end of the world. Okay? What it's actually describing, I believe, is an end of prophetic time, and I'll tell you why in just a second as we read on. That there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, so we're in the sixth, we're waiting for the seventh. In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, so just before the seventh angel sounds, seventh angel, by the way, sounds at the end of time, second coming is in the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared it to his servants, the prophets. The mystery, When a mystery is finished, what's happened? It's been revealed, right? It's no longer a mystery. Mystery is finished when the mystery is over, right? So the mystery that the prophets have laid out will be finished and there will be delay no longer or time no longer. And some of your Bibles may say time prophecy no longer. What Revelation chapter 10 is saying is we're marking the end of those long prophetic periods that have been spoken by the prophets before. When we were talking in Daniel about the 1260 years, and the 2300 days, all of those things, he said, look, I'm marking the end of that. I'm marking the end of that. Now, here's what I want you to understand. At the end of those prophecies, the 1260 years ends at about 1798, the 2300 in 1844. In that time frame, the great awakenings start to happen. The Millerite movement starts to happen. The second coming movement around the world starts to happen. Huge amount of spiritual activity is going on. The kinds of things that really shift the world's population. I'll come back to this in just a minute. But I want you to understand that God knows when the prophecies are ending. And He's telling us as this, in this chapter, I am stepping in as these prophecies end. And as I step in, I want you to know there's delay no longer. Things that are unrolling are in my hands. The mysteries that are being told or being understood are in my hands. I am revealing them. As the open book in his hand, I believe, is the book of Daniel. And I'll carry you forward on that. Delay of time no longer. It has to do with the prophets. And it happens in the time just before the seventh trumpet is going to sound. Then he says, I love this. Prophets get to do the weirdest things. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the earth. Now, think about this. When you look at this this being who's standing there on the sea, who speaks like a roaring lion, who has clouds enshrouding him, rainbows over his head. his face shines like the sun, and his feet look like they're on fire. and the And the angel who's talking to you says, Oh, yeah, go take the book. We read these things and it's like, oh, yeah, of course you would do that. No, you wouldn't. We would have a, do what? Go get the book. Go get the book. Take the book from the guy up there. You want me to go take the book out of his hand? So John does. Being an obedient prophet, I went to the angel. I said to him, give me the little book. And he said, take it and eat it. You know, God tells Jeremiah this. (laughs) The prophets prophets are told in several places to eat books. I don't think they, you know, they're chewing on the corners of some hard-bound book somewhere. The idea is to ingest it, to take it into yourself. But I just love the imagery. He says, go see that really big, giant, thunder, lightning, God-like creator out there and take the book. And he goes, okay. Gonna have the book. Yep, eat it. <laughs> so he says, "It will be. It will be to. Your, uh, it will be bitter to your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth." I took the book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. Does, does any of this seem unusual to you? Let the scriptures. Speak for what they say. Let them, let them make you smile once in a while. Make them, ma- let them make you quizzical. The, let, you know, strain your face once in a while and go, that's weird. It's okay. God will not strike you for lightning for thinking something like that is odd. Okay? It's a little odd. He says, I took the book and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues and kings. That's really how the book, how it wraps up. Eat the book. It's, it's sweet. I ate it, and it was bitter in my stomach. So big, strong pronouncement. Here's the pronouncement. He arrives in all of his glory, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. He speaks with thunder and, and, and a voice like a lion. And the story is, delay no longer. Prophets' mysteries are revealed. Eat this book. So you got it? Here's what's happening, though, in the time frame. When those prophecies start rolling out at the end, in 1798 and on into the middle 1800s, what's going on in the world is spectacular. Those great awakenings bring millions of people into the church. Millions. Christianity grows by millions in a matter of a couple decades. At a time when there were not but about a billion and a half people on the planet. Massive growth in the church. People are flocking into the church. What is God doing? As these prophecies wrap up and the beginning of the end happens, as the end of time starts, God starts a movement, a movement of awakening in the church. People start reading and studying and understanding the scriptures. We know a little bit about this experience. We know what, we know that in these, in these time prophecies at this moment, Crazy things are happening around the world. The 1260-day prophecy, the Great Awakening happens. Daniel is believed to be predicting the end of the world. Now, Daniel is believed to be predicting the end of the world by William Miller. You know that guy? Heard of that guy? Founder of the Millerite movement, out of which grows the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I want you to understand, Miller's not alone. This guy, Joseph Wolfe, is phenomenal. You should read his story sometime. This guy is a missionary to the Jews and Muslims. He's sent by a guy named Henry Drummond, whose name will come up in a minute. He goes off to the Middle East. He goes as far as Pakistan and India. He travels into Africa. He's all over and all around the Middle East. In this time frame, from about 1820 to the 1850s, he's there. He's predicting Jesus is going to come according to his study of Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, in 1847. And when he was asked, what will you do if Jesus doesn't come in 1847? He simply said, I'll admit that I was wrong and move on. But what he did as a missionary to Jews and Muslims was he would go in and he would share Isaiah 52 with Jewish people. And then he would start to talk to them about the prophets and the prophecies. And he would say, look, this messianic thing that's in Isaiah seems to be related most to Jesus. And he would take them into the 2300 days and to the 490 years. And he would say, look, here's Jesus. Here's the end. Here's the Messiah. Oh. Emmanuel Lacunza is a Chilean priest who starts writing about the second coming in 1820, becomes so enamored with his study of it, his understanding of of Daniel chapter 8, he begins to believe that Jesus is coming and writes this volume on the second coming, which is very much in line with a lot of what you understand about the second coming today. Written back starting in 1820. Henry Drummond, as I mentioned before, Edward Irving, Hugh McNeil, Child Preachers of Sweden, Daniel Wilson, an Episcopal Bishop in Calcutta, Thomas Playford in Adelaide, Australia, and many, many more that we keep wandering into and discovering. People we didn't even know about. There was a Buddhist monk predicting the second coming of Jesus at this time. There were Muslim imams preaching the second coming of Jesus at this time. Crazy stuff happening around the world. What's going on? As these prophecies wrap up, Jesus is stepping in and saying, Look, with great authority, the movement is going forward. As Daniel's book is opened, it will be a sweet experience. And the people who are preparing for Jesus to come at that moment speak just that way. In the anticipation of Jesus, they were excited. It was so sweet, so great. They were so connected. You know what I believe the thunderings were? I believe that what those seven thunders spoke were the events that he wasn't actually coming. And the reason it had to be sealed up was because if he said, you're going to believe he's coming, but he's not actually coming, no one would have preached it. And as crazy as it may sound, the preaching of the wrong thing affected so many millions of people to follow Christ. That it was the right thing to do. And you and I can have a long discussion about that later. All around the world, it wasn't just William Miller in the East in the United States, it was people all around the world. Some of these other preachers actually visited the United States to preach the same doctrine. God was awakening people to Daniel. Daniel two, Daniel seven, Daniel eight, Daniel nine, and as he awakened them to understanding in that book, the things they shared kept they kept understanding. Hey, this twelve hundred sixty day prophecy is ending. It ended like in seventeen ninety eight. Something must be going on. This this twenty three hundred day prophecy seems to be ending somewhere in the mid eighteen hundreds. Something must be going on, and they began to get excited about studying and understanding and discovering Jesus, and millions of people chose to follow Christ during that period. So what is Jesus revealing? The end of prophetic timelines. The end of the prophetic timelines mark the beginning of the end of time. It doesn't mark the end of time. The beginning of the end, the last days. The people of God are called to keep telling of his coming. What's the last thing in the passage? Prophesy again. Don't give up speaking about Jesus. Don't give up speaking about what's coming. Don't stop. Prophesy again. Keep talking about the coming of Christ. Because it will happen. That in disappointing moments, He stands in all His authority with His people. Amen. That picture is the most... One of the most grand authoritative pictures of Christ in all of the scriptures. And he says, I stand with my people in these disappointing, difficult moments. God knows the time. Sometimes folks come to me, and it seems to happen, especially at camp meeting style gatherings, and they'll come to me and say, the signs of the end are all around us. Everybody sees it. Everybody believes it. The signs of the end are here. You need to be more anxious about this. And I just to have a hard time being anxious. If Jesus is coming in my lifetime, yeah, lots of crazy things happening in Revelation. But before the crazy things happen, I remember that there's this interlude in Daniel 7, in Revelation 7 where he says, He seals his people. He holds back the wind of strife until all his people are sealed. And they're okay. They're under his wing. They're cared for. They're protected. When people are really anxious about the second coming, the question I have for you, and maybe you're getting a little anxious today. The question I have for you is how big is your God? Is he able to take care of you no matter what comes? Then you can rest in him. The significance of the end of time is not that you know all the details of what's happening. It's that you know who's coming. That you have a relationship with Jesus. I keep reading it over and over and over again in the scriptures. Over and over again it says, man, the standard is up here for your behavior. And you know you're not measuring up. So fall on Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one whose righteousness is our covering, whose grace is our gift, and whose hand holds ours through whatever comes. I, would, I don't want you to be afraid of the coming of Jesus. The most glorious event in the history of mankind is the end of all things on the planet that relate to sin. Let's not be afraid of that. Let's, let's be sweet and joyous and excited about that and know that if your hand is in his hand, you're okay. As a little kid, and it's played out all the time, you get the opportunity to go on rides at the fair. You know, you know the rides. The ride when I was a little kid that scared me the most was the Ferris wheel because it went really high and it shook when you were up there. The only way I would get on a Ferris wheel until I was a teenager and I had to do it for pride's sake when I was a little kid was with my mother's hand in my hand. She would pay. We would walk up the little steps and the thing would come around and people would get on and people would get on and then it would become our turn, and I'm holding on, and we would go, and we'd sit down. Pull the metal bar, which I'm sure Osha hates, down across you, and up it would go. And the scariest part for me was when the person on the opposite end of the Ferris wheel had to get on, and my mine stopped, and I stopped at the top, and it went... <laughs> As an adult, when they stop up there, I think... Put together by people who make minimum wage. (laughs) I really hope that the Ferris wheel builder makes good money. But here's my point. I think it's obvious. If you know the authority of the man who comes in a cloud with a rainbow over his head whose face shines like the sun, whose voice speaks like that of a lion, who stands astride the sea and the land, who raises his hand and makes this proclamation, if you are sure of his authority, just hold his hand. Let's pray. Father God, first thank you that we don't blow through the trumpets and the seals and the plagues all at once. That every time it gets really hairy, you stop and you give us a window into your heart and we get a glimpse of what you are like. Thank you for that kind of love and grace. Father, this morning, as we begin to tiptoe into Revelation, I pray for courage. Courage built on who we know courage built on Your greatness and Your authority. On Your sacrifice and in Your promise. In Jesus' name, Amen. I would invite you to pick up and read the passages we skipped. Pastor Greg once preached through Revelation in three and a half years, and so we decided we needed to skip a few parts. So the the sections in between you may want to pick up, read through 11. We're going to pick up 12, 13 next week, Um, 14 the following week. So kind of familiarize yourself with those. Um, I think that you will find that there are many blessings there from God. Take the time to check it out. Take the time to read them. Our discipleship classes are beginning in just a few minutes. There are some hot drinks. There will be some bagels and things out for you. Be uh, Feel free to, to take part in some.